You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 9 this morning. And it's great to be back with you. And uh, we got, Brandon and I had the opportunity to have dinner with uh, Pastor Paul and Sue last night. And he's looking great. I want you to know that he misses you. He's looking forward to being back with you. I want you to know he had salmon and kale. Okay, so all is good. Everything's great. He's on the, on the right, going the right direction. So it's really great. Great to be here together, right? All we're doing right now is we're continuing our worship to the Lord by placing ourselves underneath the authority of God's word. That's what we're doing right now. Are you excited about that? All right. Uh, Life is about making adjustments. Right? It's all about that. If if your back goes out, you have a bad back, some of you might uh, go to your chiropractor or, like me, reluctantly go to your chiropractor and They'll make a little adjustment, and then eventually you'll be able to get back up on your feet. Or if the financial markets change, like maybe you've got a budget one month and everything kind of changes, you got to go back and make a new adjustment to what you're doing, right? So life is about making adjustments. But there is no greater error in your life where we have to make adjustments than with our attitudes. Probably more than anything, more than anything, it's our attitudes that we have to adjust. And it's so easy to see the need of that in other people, right? Like this little guy here. Um, many of you have been here. Anyone been there in supermarket, aisle number five, child meltdown, you know, kind of thing? And uh, here's this two-year-old, and you can, just, you can just see it in him, right? He's having a temper tantrum. He's frustrated. He's stomping his feet. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. And, you know, we don't have little kids anymore. We have grandchildren now, so my grandkids would never do this. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But when we're in a store and we see this happen, I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to cry or whether I'm supposed to laugh. All I know this is that little guy needs what? An attitude adjustment. He needs an attitude. It's easy to see it in other people. Easy to see it in other people. It's really difficult to admit it when you need it yourself. Especially, it shows up especially when life is hard. When life is really difficult. When the challenges are really big in in our lives. I know for me, when life gets really hard, I have this tendency to pull within myself. I put these imaginary walls around myself and I pull inside myself and I say things like, God, you, guess, you need to make this stop. I want, I, I want out. Or maybe it'll eventually get to a point where I've started to have a pity party for myself where I say, this isn't fair. You know, I just don't want this to happen. This, this isn't fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. Or, or maybe even I would say something like, oh, I quit. I just can't take this anymore. Or even get angry. This, this is wrong. Right? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with saying those things to God. The Psalms are full of examples of people who said those kinds of things to God. It's just that when it moves from a moment to being a lingering mood for a long, long period of time, then I know there's something fundamentally wrong, and my, I need an attitude adjustment. Okay? I'm looking at your faces, and you're all kind of going, oh, that never happens to me. Does that ever happen to you? It happens to all of us, doesn't it? When life gets harder and harder, we need to change our attitude. 
Now, 1 Peter, we looked at this last week, 1 Peter is a letter written to people who have it pretty hard. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're having to submit themselves to harsh rulers. They're suffering for their faith. We were reminded last week that they had to stand firm in their calling, that they had been chosen. They had to live out their citizenship. They were exiles. They were not only citizens of earth, but where, were, where was their citizenship? It was in heaven. It was in heaven, right? Just like ours if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Look at this. This is amazing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, he says in verses 3 and 4. When life gets harder and harder, your attitude will change when... You worship God for what he has already done. When you worship God for what he has already done. He starts here in verse 3. Blessed. Blessed, he says in verse 3. Right? This is um, a different word than the one that's used in Psalm 1, where it says, blessed is the man, right? Or the Beatitudes where blessed are those, blessed are the persecutors, right? Or not persecutors, peacekeepers, Right? Blessed are that blessed. Those words there in Psalm 1 and Matthew 5, blessed means to be happy. He's not saying here in verse 3, happy be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying. This is not a statement of fact where he's saying God is blessed, but it's a statement of action where he's saying that we're supposed to bless God. Literally speak well of him. It's an emphasis on us praising God, ascribing worship to God, proclaiming that he is, that he's awesome, that he's amazing, that there's no one like him. That's what's all wrapped up in this word blessed. It's a, there's an intensity and there's an urgency in this word. Blessed, he says. And it's, it's, it's a word for us. Are you blessing him, he says? Are you proclaiming his worth? Are you expressing his worship towards him? Are you locked in like that with God? Now, I, I didn't get the opportunity to, to see how you were doing that this morning. I sit, I sit in the front row. That's one of the drawbacks of sitting in the front row. If you're sitting in the back, way back there, you get to watch everybody else, and I know this to be true, not everybody worships the same way. We don't all express ourselves the same way, right? Like, is that true? That's true, right? We all worship a little bit differently, express our worship to God a little bit differently. Brenda and I, even though we're married, we've been married for 32 years. Did I get that right? <laughs> 32 years. We're, we're, uh, our personalities are different, so we worship God differently. But in this word blessed, you need to understand this. There's an intensity and an urgency in this word. So no matter what your personality is, it's an expression to saying that to the limit of your personality, worship the Lord. So I don't know how you want to describe your, you want to describe your personality like a triangle or a square or a circle. I don't, I don't care what it is, but whatever that shape is, if 
if you're worshiping, if it's a circle and you're worshiping the Lord down here, you're not getting the word blessed. The word blessed is within the shape of your personality, whatever your personality is like, to the limit of that personality. Blessed are the Lord, is the Lord. Blessed is the Lord. You express it. Now you say, well, what, why are we supposed to do that? Well, because of what he alone has done. Look at, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again. That's the John 3 conversation that Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Do you remember that conversation? Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus thinks he's talking about a new physical, another physical birth. He's confused, as most people probably would be when they hear those words. He's confused. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical birth. He's talking about a new spiritual birth. Or the Apostle Paul talks about becoming a new creation or having the Spirit of God live in us. That's what he's talking about. That's, he, he has caused us to be born again. God does that. We don't do that, right? Only God can do that. Why do we worship God to the limits of our personality? Because he alone has caused us to be born again. He is the only one that can give us rebirth. I've never seen a child come into this world and, and, the, and the, on its arrival say, I'm here, I'm amazing, hey, look at me, look at what I've done. Right? right? Who thinks when the new baby shows up in the operating room that they have any right to say, I'm amazing, look at what I've done. Who should be getting the credit for the birth? Oh, come on. Men, men, who should be getting the credit for the birth? A fa- somebody said a father? Who said father? <laughs> Not wise, right? Just hide your face right now. The mother deserves the credit. Why? Because God has chosen to use her to allow this child to come into the world. In the same way, when we look at this new birth in Christ, it's not about what I have done. When I became a Christian, it had nothing to do with what I did. It had everything to do with what God did. It's what he did. He caused that. It's what he has did. And he did it all because of his great mercy. Do you see it there in verse 3? According to his great mercy, he says in verse 3. None of us, all of us in this room, we, we don't deserve anything but God's wrath and judgment. There's no one in this room that deserves anything from God other than God's wrath and judgment. All have sinned, Romans 3.23. All have sinned in what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Death is separation from God. That's what we deserve. Right? Sin has left its mark on all of us, all of creation. Has left his, his mark on us, and that's what we deserve. But because of his mercy, I'm convinced of this, that 
people will never understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ until they understand the bad news. They understand the bad news. And um, it's really important for you to understand that. The, uh, Hurricane Harvey hit last the, yesterday. Anybody not aware of that? Hurricane Harvey hit Texas yesterday, uh, Category 4 hurricane. There's a town just outside of Corpus Christi where the eye hit, the, hit in the coast called Rockport, Texas. And uh, all the officials warned everybody, right, they had a mandatory evacuation. You have to understand in the United States, a mandatory evacuation is basically just a warning. They just kind of go around and say, you have to leave, you have to leave, but you, it's up to you whether you want to leave or not. And um, in a town of about 20 or 25,000 people, they, they estimate about 5,000 people decided to stay. Okay, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I'm sure they had their reasons, but it was a Category 4. And um, the officials told them that if you choose to stay, it would be good for you to write your names and your Social Security numbers on your forearms. In case we have to, you know, to identify your body. All right, all right. That would get, I mean, that would get my attention. But still, 5,000 people chose to stay behind. You know, we, we marvel at that, and we kind of go, wow, that's kind of crazy. Why would anybody do something like that? But, you know, I, I have been, I've been preaching the gospel for a long time now probably over 30 years now. Been preaching the gospel, preaching sermons, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, and it still continues, it still, it still marvels with me that people don't get the bad news. But here, if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with the God of this universe, Jesus Christ himself. You are lost. And without Christ, without Christ, and without your, a faith relationship in Jesus Christ, you are destined for an eternity without God. You're going to hell. And you need to understand that bad news so that you can understand this good news according to his great mercy. In other words, even though that all of us in this room deserve only God's judgment and his wrath, he extended his mercy. That is, he, he chose through Christ to not give us what we deserve. In fact, the Bible teaches us that when Christ died on the cross, God took that judgment that was declared for us because of the sin that we had, and he placed it on Christ himself. He became sin for us, who knew no sin. So that through faith, a simple faith expression, expressing your faith, confessing and repenting of your sin, and asking for forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you could experience God's mercy. <laughs> 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if I can say it any more vivid than that. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. There it is, right out in front of you, plain as it can be, the offer of good news. If you get the bad news, you know how great the good news is. It's amazing, absolutely, absolutely amazing. What's it? So what, what, is he actually, what has he actually done? What has he given to What are the results of this thing that he has done? Well, look at what it says in verse 3. He has, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us a living hope. Hope's this sure certainty of something in the future. It's not wishful thinking like I hope I win the lottery one day. That's wishful thinking. You say, well, somebody's got to win. Yeah, I get it. But it's still wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. It's not just an idea. Hope, biblical hope is not just an idea. It's a certainty alive in you. It's a confidence alive in you. It's not based on a superstition. It's based on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's our hope. He rose from the dead. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. So those who believe in him will rise again as well. That's our hope, our, our, our living hope. He's given us a living hope. He's given us an inheritance in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is like something that one of your relatives leaves you, for you um, when they die. When, I, when my grandpa died a number of years ago, he left me an inheritance. Now, you're going to be underwhelmed. I know that. But I want to share with you the inheritance that my grandpa left with me. My grandmother, my nana, went, after my grandpa died, she gave me these two things. She gave me a, a ring that my grandpa used to wear. I still have it. It's in a safe place. And it has his initials on it, William Strathcleave Bishop, WSB, right, on his, his ring. And every once in a while when I see it, I'm reminded of him. That's a real precious thing for me. But the one thing that I really, really that I love that I got in my inheritance is I got a cribbage board. Now, some of you don't know what a cribbage board is. A cribbage, cribbage is a game that you play, you know, cards and pegs and all that kind of stuff. And... Don't judge me, okay? But that's what I, I used to play cribbage with my grandpa. Whenever I went to his house, I would always play cribbage. But this cribbage board is special because it's hand-carved out of a seal tusk, all right? My, my grandpa grew up in Newfoundland, and um, there's a seal tusk that he's that someone hand-carved and it's this cribbage board. And every time I see it, it takes me back to those moments when I was playing cribbage with my grandpa. Now you're going, wow, that's it? That's all you got? I know some of you are holding out for something a little bit bigger for your inheritance, right? I know you're holding out for that. But I want to tell you that if you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, you have an amazing inheritance. You see how it's described here? These, these four words, imperishable. It never perishes. It's, it's never corrupted. It's undefiled. It can never spoil. It won't lose its luster or its beauty. It's unfading. It lasts forever. It's kept. 
kept in heaven for you. It's secure. It's, it's certain. It's reserved by God for you. This is, do, do you understand the inheritance that you have that awaiting for you? When you, leave, when you step away, when you step out of this life, absent from the body, you are then what? Present with the Lord. And you are going to receive your inheritance. Heaven. The full anticipation of that is new heavens, new earth. That's what our inheritance is. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're anticipating. And who, I mean, who can say things like imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept about any of their earthly inheritances? Right? After the government gets their percentages, you are left with less. Then after a little bit of time, it all runs out. It can lose its value over time. Not, not your inheritance as a child of God. Not, in fact, I would say this. The closer you get to your inheritance, the more valuable it comes. Right? I can tell you, I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Right? There's this excitement, this anticipation. When life is hard... You've got to worship God for what he has already done. Turn up the worship tunes, sing some of your favorite hymns, tell God how amazing he is for the most fundamental, life-changing, eternity-altering gift that you have ever been given. A living hope, an inheritance. And I don't want to minimize anything on this earth, whether it's a struggle or whether it's a blessing, whether it's all the, whatever God has given you. I don't want to minimize anything, but I just tell you, anything that you have right now is nothing in comparison to what is waiting for you. And that'll change your attitude. When life is hard... You have this. It could get really hard, but I still have that. No one can take that away from me. So we have to learn when life gets hard, when it gets really difficult, when the walls of our life feel like they're closing in on us, one of the first things we need to do is we need to worship God for what he has already done. Because nobody can take that away from you. It'll change your attitude. And then this, praise God for what he's doing. Praise God for what he's doing, verses 5 through 9. Now the key phrase, before we look at these verses, the key phrase is in verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Okay? Just remember, that's what these verses are about. They're about rejoicing. In this you rejoice. It's not a negative attitude. It's a positive one. There's a sense of anticipation here in these words. There's an enthusiasm. Okay, so what do we rejoice in? Well, we rejoice in what God is doing. God's working on our faith. You see it three times? Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Verse 7. So that the test of genuineness of your Faith, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What do you think these verses are about? Faith. Okay, these verses are about faith. God is working on your faith. Now, faith in these verses means the ongoing belief in God that results in your faithfulness. 
The ongoing belief in God that results in your faithfulness. That's what God is working on. That's what he's doing now, what he's doing in the present. He's working on your faith. You say, well, why is he doing that? Because God has chosen to make faith critical. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, he says right off the bat right here that God's power guards us. He's like, God's power is like a secret service detail, right? Like a seat. Oh, George, you're in the front row again. Stand up, Joe. George, I got the pick on you again. It's great. Okay. No waivers required. We're not going to hurt you. Thank you. Um, this is what, it's like, you know, it's secret service detail. They take a dignitary. George is our dignitary just for, you know, he's an important guy. We love him, right? We love George, right? Yeah. We love George, right? That's right. Okay, so we want to protect George. So, you know, maybe, maybe he needs a bodyguard detail. Just play, play with this for a bit, okay? Bodyguard detail. So this is what God's power is like. God's power is like this. It surrounds you. It secures you. Anything. Nobody, nobody gets at George unless you come through me, okay? Nobody's going to be able to do anything to George because I am going to... Dude, maybe you could... Maybe you should be up here, right? I'm just kind of thinking... I'm not the right body type for this illustration. <laughs> but do you get the idea? Thanks, George. Do you get the idea? That's what God's power is like. God's power is so secure in us, protects us, guards us. But note what he says. Note what he says here in, the, in this verse. He says, who by God's power we're being guarded, we're being shielded through what? Faith. What? See, it's God's power is the thing that protects us, that guards us, that shields us, but faith is the means by which God's power guards us. God's power does not bypass our faithfulness. No faith, no salvation. In other words, guys, God knows it's critical. So he's investing in the development of our faith. His plan, his plan, his plan. That's how he's chosen to do that. He's working in, with our faith and kind of working through that process. Now this is where it gets really difficult because obviously faith is pretty critical. But this is where it gets difficult for me and sometimes for you. Because what we're about to see now in these verses is so important to the adjustment of your attitude when life is hard. All right, let's look at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God knows that faith is critical, and so he wants to develop our faith. So how does he do that? God uses trials to test our faith. He uses trials to grow our faith, to develop our faith, to strengthen our faith. The word testing there means to discover or to refine. 
He's looking for a genuine or an authentic kind of faith, a real faith. He uses the illustration of gold. Did you see that, the illustration of gold that he uses here? Right in the text, he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Do you know what temperature gold is refined at? 1,093 degrees centigrade. Or, for you imperial fans, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? So I don't know but you, like, once I get past 30, it's all hot to me. So... Um, but just think about that, you know, like I complain when it's 35 outside or 40. If it ever got to 40, well, that's sort of super hot. 1,093 degrees. What happens is the gold is placed in these furnaces and they, they jack the temperature up. And what happens at that temperature, any impurities in the gold rise to the surface and they can actually get those off to make the, so that the gold is more pure. It's more refined. So he said, <laughs> this is beautiful. He says this here. He says, um, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. In other words, your faith is more precious than that gold that is tested at 1,093 degrees centigrade. Your faith is more, pre- your tested faith is more precious than that. It's more precious than that. Real faith listen, this is important. Real faith, the faith that God loves to use to protect us, is developed at a thousand and ninety-three degrees. Not literally but metaphorically. In other words, when it's super hard, when it's super hot, when it's super difficult, when it's super challenging, God uses those moments to purify our faith, to make it more real, to make it more authentic. And don't miss this. God rewards you when you go through that. You see what it says in verse 7? So that the tested authenticity or genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I, I believe that some people, their lives are marked by more 1,093-degree moments than other people's. Like the Apostle Paul. You read through the New Testament of the Apostle Paul, like sometimes I kind of wonder, did that guy ever have a day off, you know, kind of thing? It's like he goes to one town, gets persecuted, he shares the gospel, gets persecuted, left for dead, he has to go to another town, it happens again, goes to another town, it happens again. He was shipwrecked, he was all these different things. I mean, it was just, you know, in prison, all these different things, all these different things. And yet, and yet God, did God waste any of that? No, he didn't waste it. He used that, and, and, he, and he refined that man, and he made, he, he made his faith, his faith better. And, and, I, and I know this to be true. I know this to be true. At the day of Jesus Christ, at the day, at day of Jesus Christ, he, he will, it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of you here, your lives have been marked with 
great challenges and great difficulties. I want you to understand that if you allow God to kind of do the refining work that he needs in your life, and he purifies and he makes your faith that real, reward's coming. Reward's coming. You say, well, what, what is that faith? What is that authentic faith? What is the type of faith that God actually rewards? Well, it's right here in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and, and filled with glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him, he says. He's saying to these people who weren't there when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem. They're in other places. They've come to know Christ and they weren't there. They didn't live with Jesus Christ, just like us. We weren't around when Christ lived in the first century. We, don't, we didn't see him walk the streets of Jerusalem. He says, though you did not see him, you what? Love him. And though you do not see him now, you still believe in him. And you have this joy in you that is inexpressible, he says. It's inexpressible and filled with glory. This joy is the result of a growing confidence in the promises, plans, and provisions of God for the future. That's the kind of faith that God rewards. That's real faith. And as you go through the difficulties and the challenges of life, as you're stretched and you're pressed in on God is using those moments to increase your love for him, to increase your belief in him, to increase your confidence in his plans and his provisions and his promises. Do you see it? When I was 25 years old, like some of you in this room, I loved Jesus. But not like now. When I was 25, I just, uh, I just got married. I just, we had just been married, right? I was 24. I have to check with you now because I'm so old. I can't, can't remember the dates and stuff. And, um, I had lived 25 years of life. But I, I have 31 more years of life. And on that list of life events are a series of 1,093-degree moments. And in those moments, God has taught me how to love him more, how to believe in him more, and how to be more confident in his promises, his plans, and his provisions. That's real faith. Some of you have could say the exact same thing. You've seen God do amazing things through the hard times and the difficult times of life. And that is why we, we have this promise in verse 9 that we will, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. You know, trials are not fun. They're really hard. 
That's why he says in verse 6, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Being uh, left out because of your faith is not, that's not fun. Losing someone you love is not easy. Facing uncertainty of what is next is difficult. And yet God uses all of these moments to increase our faith, to teach us how to love him more, to believe in him more. He increases our confidence in his promises, his plans, his provisions. He even rewards us for that kind of faith. See, life's all about making adjustments. It's about making adjustments. And the biggest adjustment you're going to have to make is your attitude towards hardships, difficulties. No one wants to suffer, but we do. And it's just amazing to me that in the midst of the challenges of life, how worshiping God for what he has done and praising God for what he is doing can change your whole outlook towards the difficulty. It does. Worshiping God for what he has done, the, the salvation that you have, it just changes everything. And, and then praising him for what he is doing, realizing that in the midst of the difficulty, he's refining your faith. He's refining your faith and you're learning more about him and he's going to reward you for that and ultimately bring you, protect you and take you to the finish line with that. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. It just totally can transform the way that you look at the experiences of your life. And so what is that thing? We talked about this last week. What is that trial or that situation or the circumstance in your life that is Get, where it's getting hotter and hotter and diffi more difficult and difficult and more challenging and challenging. What is that? And can you, can, you, can you muster up in your soul the ability to worship God in the midst of that for what he has done and praise him in this moment knowing that he wants to redeem this situation to give you an authentic faith that will ultimately end up in a massive reward for you. The salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Okay, so I want you to do what we've been talking about. Name the, name the challenge. Okay, what is it that is, that is, you know, hard for you right now? What is the thing that is pressing in on you? And then just take some time right now to worship God for what he alone has done for you. He's given you, if you're a follower of Christ, he's given you a living hope and inheritance all because of his mercy. Worship him. Just cry out to him. Say, God, bless you. You're amazing. Thank you, Father, for saving me. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for Christ, the sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for thank you for your mercy and your grace, your faithfulness. Now can you praise him? Can you praise him for what he's doing? how he's refining your faith, that it might be a bit harder to take this step.
but can you praise him for what he's doing? Some of you might be really experiencing great pain today. Just cry out to him these words, Father, I praise you. I love you. I believe in you. I have this confidence in your promises, your plans, your provisions. Thank you for the joy that you've given to me in the midst of the pain, to be confident in your promises, your plans, and your provision. Father, you're amazing. I just love how your word speaks to us. Thank you for giving this broken man hope this week. Thank you for the inheritance and the hope that we all have, those of us that know Christ. And thank you for taking the challenges of life and making us into the people you want us to be. We love you. We believe in you. We're blessed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.